to life. Guidebooks to life are kind of all the rage at the moment, aren't they? I'm sure you kind of see the sort of thing that I'm talking about. You might have Jordan Peterson. You've heard of him, I'm sure. Jordan Peterson and his book, 12 Rules for Life. That's kind of sitting up at the top bestseller list. Or you've got somebody else's 10 Steps to Successful Living. So these are guidebooks uh, to life there everywhere you look, everywhere I look. Well, this morning, it may be that that is what you're thinking that we're about to explore just now. Uh, That you may think that the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, that they're just guides, nice little hints, nice little steps towards a better way of living and a nicer, happier life. Well, if that's how you're thinking about the Beatitudes, I want to say this to you. I want you to consider this, I think, essential truth. What you've got in your hands is teaching from the almighty, eternal God. How often it is that we lose sight of that. That really what we're about to look at just now and open up are divinely revealed expectations. These are expectations from God. And they are expectations that lead not just to a happier life and a nicer life. These are expectations that lead to a life that enjoys the very favor of the almighty eternal God. Expectation that leads to God's favor upon us. That's a thought, is it not? But before we get to the Beatitudes, I think there's a few preliminary questions I've got to try and address here, aren't there? A few things we've got to wrestle with. First one is this, who's Jesus talking about? Who is he describing in this list of Beatitudes? And most of you were here last week, were you? You remember who Jesus is talking to in the Beatitudes, don't you? Who's he talking to? He's talking, he's up the mountainside and he's talking to his followers and he's talking to, he's talking to us. But when he's talking to us here, who is he describing? You see the nature of the question I'm asking. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, what is he saying? Who's he describing? Is he describing anyone on this earth who is bereaved? That they receive the blessing of God. Blessed are those. Is it, is it everyone he's describing? Or is it just some people? What was he talking about? Okay, two things you've got to notice to answer that. And you've got to work with me here. First is to notice the brackets around the Beatitudes. Do you see them? Have a look. Look at verse 3. What's the first Beatitude mentioned to you? Look at the end of the first Beatitude. It mentions the kingdom of heaven, doesn't it? Now, look at the end of the Beatitudes. So the the Beatitudes actually end really at the last Beatitudes, verse 10. Look at how it ends. So it begins with the reference to the kingdom of God. It ends with a reference to the kingdom of heaven. Do you see it? What is Jesus? Who's he describing? He's describing people who live in God's kingdom. He's describing here people who live under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone got it? That's the first thing. The second thing is then to notice the very first word of every beatitude. Even the boys and girls, you got that, did you? You got the first word of each beatitude, every verse. It's the word blessed. Now, we are a reformed congregation. We should know what that word blessed is, do we? Is it not an Old Testament word? Is it not 
a covenantal word. It's a word that God uses towards Abraham. Blessed. It's a word that God uses all the way through the Bible towards his covenant community. Now, let's do the sum. Put those two things together. What do you see? If Jesus is describing those under his rule, and if he's speaking to the covenant community and about the covenant community, who's he describing in the Beatitudes? He's describing you. Now listen to me. What you've got before you are the expectations, divine expectations upon your life, upon Christian living. This is not about everyone out there. This is God's expectations of us. It's the first question. Second question kind of follows on from that. Because you would agree with me on this, would you, that there are an awful lot of blessings. There's a lot of good stuff in these verses. Don't you think so? I mean, come on. The meek will what? Inherit the earth? It's good stuff. It's a lot of blessing there. When does that blessing come to us? You see the question, is that blessing for now, today? Do we inherit the earth right now? Or is this about glory? Is this about heaven? I mean, if if I'm a, a Christian who is meek, Do I get the earth now? Do I get it later? I'm sure you see the question. Well, I hope that a lot of you in here have heard uh, the phrase that theologians band about. It's this phrase. The already, but not yet. Anyone heard that? You heard that? Uh, There's a few smiles and uh, nodding heads. The already, but not yet. Now, that's a way that theologians talk about the kingdom of God, isn't it, friends? That in a sense, the kingdom of God is already. And it is, right? I mean, Jesus has come. He's inaugurated the kingdom. He said the kingdom of heaven is, is now. It's, so the kingdom of heaven is already. But isn't it true there's also a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is not yet? What do you hope for as a Christian? What do you know as a Christian? One day Christ shall come again. Isn't that right? And we will see on that a full realization of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is already, it's here, but it's also not yet. Now, does that not help us to answer this question? Do you remember the question? Is this blessing of the Beatitudes for me today or for heaven? What's the answer? Is it blessing for today or for just for, what's the answer? The answer is already, but not yet. The answer is both. (laughs) Isn't it beautiful if you're a Christian here? Just take an example. If we're pure in heart, what's going to happen? What does Jesus promise? Did you notice? We shall see God. And so wait a minute. What do you know as a Christian? One day that's going to happen to you. One day you are going to see God. You're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. See God in Jesus' face. But what else is true? If we are pure in heart as Christians, today, tomorrow, the eyes of faith, we will so see more and more and more of God Isn't it marvelous? Yes, here we've got expectations upon us. But what does Jesus do? He shows us the blessing that accompanies that. And then the last of the sort of introductory questions, if you like, preliminary questions. Really easy one, I suppose. How are we going to tackle the Beatitudes? I don't know if you counted them. There are eight Beatitudes. Are we going to have... An eight-point sermon this morning. There was a a few sort of uh, nodded heads earlier on. Now there's shaking of heads. So maybe we don't want uh, an eight-point sermon. No, this is what I want you to appreciate just now. 
that what we're going to do is we are going to split the Beatitudes into two loose groups. Have you ever noticed that? That yes, there is a crossover, but the first four Beatitudes really major on our relationship with God. And the second four Beatitudes, although there's crossover, of course, this is not too strict, but the next four focus on our relationship with our fellow man. So today, two points and two points alone, the Christian loving God and then the Christian loving his neighbor, the Christian loving God and the Christian loving his neighbor. There's a lot there, okay? A lot in the introduction. I can take a deep breath. But let's look at this. First of all, the Christian loving God. Now, in a previous life, um, many, many years ago, a lot of you are aware that uh, before I was in the ministry, uh, that I was a community worker in a very, very deprived area of Scotland. So I was working in a church very deprived part of a city in Scotland, and I was a community worker. Maybe you can imagine what that was like, can you? And you can imagine, I'm sure, that as part of my job, I was kind of tasked by my boss about reading an awful lot about uh, material need. Now, did you see that? I was having to read a lot of material about the Christian's responsibility to try and reach those in society with with material problems, material need. You see the, the idea? Now, what you have to appreciate, friends, this morning is that lots and lots of people think that that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has in view in the very first beatitude. Now, maybe you'll look at it in verse 3. Both Matthew and Luke, they begin their uh, summary of the beatitudes, if you like, with a reference. Do you see it? It's a reference to the poor. So you will hear this an awful lot, that what Jesus is doing here, he is saying, blessed are those who are destitute. That they may be destitute now, but God's favor is on poor, material poor. And this is what I want you to hear, please. That right before you in this first beatitude, the Lord Jesus Christ is not speaking about the material poor at all. You see, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus references the poor, the examples he uses are of men who are wealthy. So let's say Naaman the Syrian or, or so forth. So he calls them poor, but they are actually material, materially of some substance. And then you add to that the qualification of verse 3. Have a look at verse 3. Does Jesus say blessed are the poor? My friend, he does not say that. What does he say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So I hope that you see what Jesus is saying here. I ask you, who is it that possesses the kingdom of God? And you say to me, ah, it is those who are spiritually impoverished, isn't it? Blessed are those who recognize before God that they are spiritually bankrupt. The Christian who sees spiritually he is insolvent. The Christian who's living daily in light of the fact that he owes God, a debt, a debt that he could never pay. That Christian is the one Jesus says here possesses the kingdom. And then I want you to work. I want you to do this with me. Maybe you would do this. Would you try and imagine what it is like 
for a minister when he has got a funeral to arrange. And let's not use me as an example. Let's take a, a vicar, a minister, in a different part of the country. And maybe you can imagine they're sitting at his desk in the vestry and the phone goes and he hears that one of his congregants has passed away. So what's the, what's the guy got to do? What's that minister got to do if he's got a funeral to arrange? He's got to counsel and comfort the bereaved, doesn't he? And he's got to speak to the undertaker, I guess. And he's got to organize, you know, the service. And then what happens for this vicar that we're thinking about? As that date approaches, he has to fix himself onto a text to speak at, doesn't he, at the funeral. So can you imagine this uh, vicar there, this elderly vicar in his vicarage, and he's sifting through the Bible. He's like, what am I going to preach on at this funeral? And he works through the New Testament. Oh, where am I going to go? And he gets into Matthew's gospel. And he's like, oh, anything here? And gets into the Beatitudes. And maybe he rests on the next Beatitude you've got in front of you. Because you see what verse 4 says. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be good. Now my question to you, my friend, is whether you think that that is a good text for a funeral or not. You, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I want you to hear it. I want you to hear it. This there is less about grief in death than it is again about spiritual mourning and spiritual sorrow. See, the longer you and I are in the Beatitudes, the more we will marvel at the progression in Jesus' thought. What have you thought of the Beatitudes up to this point today? Have you thought that these are just individual, isolated nuggets of gold? They are a chain. They are connected. Do you understand that there is progression of thought from the Lord Jesus? Now do you recognize it from, what was the first one? From an awareness of spiritual poverty. Where does Jesus go? He goes now to sorrow over that sin. Do you see? Do you see how they're connected? He goes from a confession of bankruptcy spiritually, confession of sin, now into what? Contrition over sin. This is not grief over the death of a loved one. This is spiritual tatters, spiritual destitution, spiritual mourning. And if you appreciate that now, would you not agree with what I'm going to say? It is the most counterintuitive idea that you've probably ever heard in your whole life. Because what is Jesus Christ saying to Christians in here? He is saying to you, happy are you when you are sad. He is saying to you, you know, blessed are you when you are in pieces over your sin. You enjoy the favor of God. And maybe that's you. Maybe that is you this past week. Maybe you have seen your sin and maybe as a Christian you have been on your knees and you cannot believe that this has been you again. And you're feeling that weight of your sin and you're feeling the offense to God of that sin. You can't believe it. You've been crying out. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ say to you in this beatitude? That's a good place to be. It's a good place to be because through that, what happens, you will experience the contentment and joy of the Lord your God. But then just as we are 
horsing through it and we've got up to speed, what happens? We encounter a problem because as we work through Matthew 5, we now hit a word that is, I think, maybe you agree, is most misunderstood. Do you see it is? Verse 5, blessed are the meek. A couple of years ago, I preached on this. Not in this text, but I preached on meekness as part of a sermon. And I had a really interesting chat afterwards. I'll not name names. That would get everyone into trouble, wouldn't it? But we were having a cup of coffee afterwards. I was chatting to a, a, a person unnamed uh, who's no longer in the, the congregation. And uh, we, were, we were at it about meekness. And so I asked this uh, person, you know, what do you think meekness means? And the person responded to me and said, meekness, if a man is meek, then a man is pathetic. If a man is meek, he is feeble and he is uh, uh, weak. Meek is weak. Well, I hope uh, this morning you appreciate that that is a far cry from what the Bible teaches us, isn't it right? In the Bible, to be meek. To be meek is a wonderful thing. It is something to be cherished. That meekness in the Bible is putting our desires to the side in favor of somebody else, isn't it? Meekness. It is not us selfishly asserting ourselves, not selfishly pursuing our own desires. Isn't that right? Isn't it? Isn't that what the Bible teaches us about meekness, to be prized? And yes, it's true that, of course, as Christians, we are to be meek towards each other in here, don't we? We've got to be meek towards our fellow man. But I want you to understand that is not, I don't think, in the context what Jesus is saying to you here. He is saying this. We are to be meek towards the Lord, our God. I hope as a Christian you understand what that means. To inherit the earth, as is promised here, what are we to do? Listen, we are to die to self. What is it the Lord Jesus Christ wants from you? What is the expectation of God on your life? It is not that we are single-minded for that thing that we desire. Regardless of what it means for everything else, it is not that we pursue that goal. Regardless, it is not. Our Lord wants us to yield in everything, in every single area of our lives, yield to the will of God the Father. That's meekness. That's what Christ calls for here. Now, I wonder if you have been um, keeping up with the storm The storm not raging in the east coast of the States, but raging on Twitter uh, this week in Christian circles. And perhaps it's best if you're not. I'm not sure that these Twitter storms are all that edifying for the people of God, are they? Uh, But this new Twitter storm has engulfed everyone in the last couple of weeks really involves the nature of the gospel's relationship with social justice. So you can imagine what it's been like if you haven't checked Twitter, if you're not on Twitter. You've got all these Christians with, you know, the big American names and and big UK names and everyone's got to have their say. And they're fighting about this, whether as an essential element of our faith, 
that the Christian should engage for justice in community. You know, is it an essential element of our faith to be fighting injustice out there in society? Well, I'm not going to deal with that just now. But I do want you to understand that that is what a lot of people think Jesus is talking about here in the next Beatitude. You see what he says? He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, what's the word? Last word. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so you see that word there, righteousness. Do you know, legitimately, it could have the force of justice. So do you see how a lot of people interpret it? They're saying, well, blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see justice done in society. Blessed are those who are contending for justice in community. And I, again, do not think that that's what Jesus is saying here. And I think what happens right in the middle of the Beatitudes is that perhaps there is silence and the Lord Jesus looks to you, Christian friend, and he calls into your life. And here in this Beatitude, he calls for holiness. Isn't that the nature of that beatitude? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can see, can you not? This is about a craving for godliness on a daily basis in our lives. That the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, favor upon those who are hungry for, desperate for, yearning for Christ-likeness in our lives on a day-to-day basis. And what does he promise for those people? Fulfillment. He promises that Christian satisfaction. And I'll say this to you, and I want you to listen to it. Everything that has been spoken this morning is leading up to this very moment. And it's leading up to a question that I have to ask you if you are a professing believer this morning. Will you hear the question? In all of this, does it sound as though Jesus is describing your life? These four Godward beatitudes, these Godward traits, does it sound as though Christ Jesus has been describing you, the way you live and your character? Does it sound like you, Christian friend? I mean, today, is it true of you that you can see and feel your spiritual poverty, that there is nothing good off you? Is that right? Do you weep in spiritual grief at your sin, feeling the weight of it? Are you actively surrendering in all things to the will of God? Do you say, that is that is me? And is your first appetite not sexual, not material, not physical, but is your first appetite today for the holiness of God and holy steps and holy living? Is that you? In these first four Beatitudes, has Christ Jesus been describing your life? If not, I'm sure you would agree with me, your minister. There is an almighty challenge in these expectations, Christian friend. Don't these Beatitudes give us food for thought? Now, in the past in sermons, I've used uh, an illustration. And it's an illustration of a video camera or a TV camera that's moving about. And I, being an unimaginative man... I'm going to use that same illustration just now. Because have focused you, the Christian, on your relationship with God. You see what Jesus does at this point in the text? He now takes the camera and he pans the camera, doesn't he? 
That he moves you from focusing on your relationship with God now to the expectations that God has on your relationship with your fellow man. And so the second element, the second part of this we've got to consider is the Christian's, Christian's love of his neighbor, his neighbor. And did I say this, that there's just something <laughs> truly elegant about the first idea that Christ has here. And we're told, aren't we, in the design of cars or the design of fashion, we're told that symmetry is beautiful. We hear that a lot, don't we? Symmetry is attractive to us. Symmetry is beautiful. But do you not see, if you look with me to verse 7, do you not see that there's a symmetry here? And isn't it beautiful and elegant? Because what does Jesus say? If we want to be shown what by God? If we want to be shown mercy by God, and don't we need that desperately? If we want to be shown mercy by God, what's the symmetrical thing we have to do? That we are also to show mercy ourselves, mercy to other people. Now that's a challenge, don't you think? I mean, Christian friend, if we want to be favored by God and experience his blessing, do you see what Christ is calling for? He's calling to you to be generous in your attitudes to other people. Can that be said of us? At home, to be forgiving and generous. At the workplace, to be known for that forgiving and generous attitude. To be out there with our friends, to be loving people. What is it Christ is calling for? He's saying to us, be merciful, be merciful people. And if we struggle with that, then the next one floors us, doesn't it? It floors us. Because God says of his people, Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart. Friends, I'm, I'm sure you see that this idea of purity could be in relation to God. We must be, as Christians, pure before him. But I think it's something different here, perhaps even more challenging. And I think the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to us today, and listen to my words, that you and I as Christians are to be pure in relation to our fellow man, pure in relation to other men and pure in relation to other women. And maybe as, I, as soon as I say those words, you agree with me that that is most relevant to us today. Because I ask you this, what is it that disgusts you about the society in which you live? As a Christian in here, what is it that most disgusts you about your city? Would you not reply to me that it is the rampant sexual immorality of the day? I mean, we are living in an age where we're hearing about kids in school with uh, pornography on their phones. Children, I repeat. And we live in an age where, yes, the people out there, but also the people in God's church will watch the most disgusting and illicit uh, sexual material on their TV without, though, batting an eyelid, without considering it, just accepting it and, and watching it. And you would agree maybe that there is this pool seemingly in everything in London, and it's a pool towards indecency, isn't there? In the events that are staged in London, perhaps? Indecency? And even in the conversations that take place, indecency and on social media, come on, indecency on our computers, the adverts around the city, the list goes on. There is nothing but indecency and 
Listen, what does our Lord say in Matthew 5 to us in this place today? He says to those living under his rule, not for you. No place in your life. No place must that impurity have in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. And maybe I, maybe I do have to pause here. Maybe I do. Do I? Maybe this is where it's at for you. Maybe you say, this is me. This problem with sexual impurity. This problem with sexual temptation. This is me. This is relevant to my life. Do you say that? Oh, if so, I hope you recognize what Jesus is giving you today. Because in this beatitude, Jesus Christ does not just show you the expectation for purity. Do you know what he gives you? Do you know what Jesus does? He arms you for the fight against sexual temptation. Because listen to me on this, please. One of the most effective ways of battling sexual temptation is with the promise of something better. Did you hear it? One of the most effective ways of battling sexual temptation is with the promise of something greater, something better. And don't you see it before you? Because what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see the almighty, eternal creator, God, with their own eyes. Is that not a promise? Should it not be that for us in here that we seek to remember that promise at that moment that sexual temptation comes? Are you troubled with sexual temptation, my friend? Remember the promise. Use the promise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see the Almighty God. And we're nearly there, brothers and sisters. We're nearly there. But I've got something else I want you to do. I want everyone to look at verse 9 with me. Everyone to look at it. So boys, girls, let's do it. Verse 9. Boys at the front have got it. Girls have got it. Verse 9. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to pay very close attention to the actual wording. The actual wording of this in verse 9. So what does Jesus say? Have a look at it. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So did you do what your minister asked you to do? Did you pay close attention to the wording of the Beatitudes? What is Jesus calling for from us? Is it the idea that you and I are to kind of try and keep the peace? Is that what it is? Is it? I mean, is it that we're to try and keep our own peace? We are not to be those people who rise to the bait and are argumentative in society and with our families. We're not to be like, is that the idea? We must keep the peace. Is it? No. Because Jesus does not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And I think that is the most wonderful difference. Because do you see what he's saying? He's saying, just as God the Father has made peace with us, that if we want to be known as his sons, if we want to bear his name, we've got to do more than keep peace. We have to, as Christians, take affirmative action. We're not just to watch ourselves, not just to watch our own temper. We have to teach 
peacemaking to our children. We've got to make peace in our homes. We've got to be making peace, watching out for troubles, making peace in the workplace. And we've got to be making peace in the church. And then we come to the last of the Beatitudes. Do you see the words? Blessed are those who are persecuted, persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. By now, if you've been regularly attending this congregation over the last few months and years, by now the name Andrew Brunson should be so familiar to you, and I really genuinely hope it is. Andrew Brunson is in a Turkish jail. He is a Christian minister who was arrested a number of years ago, and he has been imprisoned in Turkey ever since. And due to the fact that Mr. Brunson, Reverend Brunson, is a friend of a person who is known to a lot of the congregation, that case seems very real to our congregation, doesn't it? It is not just some unknown bloke in a prison, some, no, no, no. Here is a man that is almost known to us who is in jail. Now, it be that that is how you view this beatitude, is it? As though Jesus is saying, God's favor will rest upon any Christian who is put in jail for the nature of the gospel. Is that how you have always read that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake? Well, it is not that. Do you see that the idea is much wider? Because look at verses 11 and 12 and what Jesus does. You see, verses 11 and 12 are not technically the Beatitudes. They are an expansion of the last Beatitude. And so do you see what Jesus does? He expands the idea of persecution to include wider opposition. Blessed are those who are persecuted in what ways? What does he say to the disciples? He talks being lied about, doesn't he? Do you notice? And also opposition persecution here is stuff like being laughed at and ridiculed in, in Jesus' name. And I think, pastorally speaking, this is of great importance to us. Because there are two things that we very, very rarely think about. One, this sort of opposition and persecution will come to you. Now, I don't necessarily mean that we will be in prison for the nature, for the sake of the gospel. Although in the next few years, that may indeed be the case. But friends, if you are living in a way that echoes the expectations that the Lord Christ shows you here as a Christian, I promise you there will be persecution. There will be opposition if you live in this way that Jesus describes. But then the second thing that we very rarely think about or dwell on is what Christ promises you here. And what does he promise? That there will be blessing for you in these times. That really, if it is the case today, that you are being laughed at for your Christian faith. Are you? Is that you at work? And it's you're being shamed because you are a Christian in this society? Be lied about. Then Christ Jesus promises you blessing. Ah, blessing today. And blessing in the last. And I'm going to end this sermon. Ambitious sermon. We've tried to look at all of the Beatitudes. I want to end like this. Do you know what I want to end? I want to end right back at the beginning. Do you remember the name that I threw out right at the start? Who was it? Jordan Peterson, wasn't it? And what was it? These... His guidebooks for life, what is it? 12 steps to an awesome existence. Or 10 steps for brilliant, successful living. 
Friends, if you are not born again in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to understand that to have any favor spiritually from God, there is one first essential step that you must take. There is one step you must take. You must put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for his church. And maybe you're new to this congregation this morning. And maybe you wonder, what is it that Christ has done that makes him so important? Well, all of the believers in here would readily tell you what he has done. That he was on a mountainside here, wasn't he, with the disciples? But he would come down that mountainside. He would live in perfection. And right at the end of his life, the Lord Jesus Christ would ascend another hill. Friend, he would walk the steps up the hill of Calvary. That he would be put to the cross. And I want you to understand this. There on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ embodied every single one of those Beatitudes. In that moment of his death. Is that not right? What happened there? What are we remembering at communion? What did he do? But there for his church, he became spiritually poor. And then he became the man of sorrows, didn't he? And then he acted in mercy for you and for me. And he acted in meekness. He focused everything on his father's will. What did he do at the cross? But he made peace for you. He made peace. And how did it happen all through persecution? Persecution by his fellow man and persecution from God in bearing our sin bearing our punishment in his death. Are you not born again? Understand that first step must be taken. You must look to Christ Jesus in repentance and faith today because there at Golgotha, at that cross, I assure you, there and there only, spiritual contentment and spiritual joy is found. Let's pray.